0: The Under Review presents Terry Horstman with The Call, a podcast on sports and writing. Welcome back to another exciting episode of With The Call. For season two, we are trying to produce new episodes for you to be ready every other Wednesday. Today is episodes going up on Thursday, but going forward, it will be once every two weeks in your feed on Wednesdays. And we'll also have some special bonus episodes for you. I'm really looking forward to it. If you want to support the pod and the under review, please visit underreviewlit.com slash support. We've got all kinds of great swag available. The new stuff for issue three just came in, mugs, posters, totes, you name it. And you can always make a donation to help us keep our operations going. Today is Thursday, February 11th, which is exciting because we are fewer than five days away from opening up for submissions for our fourth issue, four. How the hell is issue four here already? I can't believe it. Please consider sending us your work. We would love to hear from you. Thank you to all who attended our issue three launch reading on Zoom this past week. This was a spectacular issue, and I'm so psyched we got to celebrate it in that way. It was so nice to see so many shining faces on Zoom and to hear the brilliant work of our contributors. If you weren't able to make it, don't worry. We'll be publishing the reading as a special podcast episode on Wednesday, March 3rd, in the same With The Call feed. My guest for today's episode of With The Call is the immensely talented Maya Washington. Maya is a filmmaker, actress, writer, poet, creative director, and arts educator. She's the writer, producer, and director of the documentary film Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, which tells the story of her father, Gene Washington, and the desegregation of college football. Maya is such a talented artist in so many areas, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have her on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Maya Washington. So joining me on this episode of uh, The Under Review Presents with The Call is Maya Washington. Maya is a filmmaker, actress, writer, poet, creative director, and arts educator. She received a BA in Dramatic Arts from the University of Southern California and an MFA in Creative Writing from Hamlin University. Woo-woo. Um, her work has garnered awards from the Jerome Foundation, Minnesota State Arts Board, Minnesota Film and Television, and others. Maya is also an under-review all-star, author of the poem, Get Your Racket Back, Keep Your Eyes on It, about the St. Paul MLK tennis buffs, which we had the privilege of publishing in our second issue, and was one of our six Pushcart nominees from 2020. Uh, Maya is also the host of the podcast, Light and Shadow, and the director of the documentary film, Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, which will be published as a memoir this fall from Little A Books. Maya, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, I wanna talk about the the film uh, first. And um, I was wondering just real quick if uh, you'd be kind enough to give a little pitch of uh, what uh, Through the Banks of the Red Cedar is for uh, any of our listeners uh, who may not have uh, seen it yet.
1: So Through the Banks of the Red Cedar follows my father, Gene Washington, uh, who played for the Minnesota Vikings in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, his experiences growing up in the segregated South Being recruited to uh, run track and play football at Michigan State University at the peak of the civil rights movement in America. And what was unique about his team at Michigan State is they were the first fully integrated college football team in America. So he and his teammates from throughout the United States, but uh, a number of them African-American, recruited from the South, who uh, went on to win back-to-back national championship titles, and he and three others were drafted in the first round of the NFL Draft in 1967. So it's a story about family. It's a father-daughter story. It's a story about race and the ways that uh, sports... Uh, played an important role in changing and shaping culture and how my dad's generation, and of course those who came long before them, uh, really paved the way for the opportunities that we see in sports today for uh, people of all ethnic backgrounds as well as uh, women. And so there's just a a lot of important history there and and that's sort of what Through the Banks of the Red Cedar encapsulates.
0: Um, and you mentioned in the beginning of uh, the documentary that um, by the time you were born, your dad's football career was uh, already completely uh, over um, and his football wasn't really that much part of your, you know, your childhood or your family dynamic. Um, my, my first question is when did that sort of change and when did uh, the story of your dad's historic football career sort of get on your radar um, as a story that you knew you wanted to tell?
1: So I'd say things really shifted for me in 2011. So at the end of 2010, my dad retired from the business sector. He worked at 3M Corporation most of my, most of my life. He was a, a guy who put on a suit and went to work every day. And uh, he had this uh, really great retirement party. Some of his ex-teammates from the Vikings showed up uh, like Joe Cap, uh, like former Justice Alan Page. Mm-hmm and uh, really got to hear a lot of great stories. And around that time, he also was voted one of the 50 greatest Vikings of all time. So this sort of shift in my dad's life occurred when I was being reintroduced to some of his uh, friends and teammates that I never uh, met because their uh, chapter in history occurred before I was born. Of course, I knew uh, Justice Page uh, growing up here in, in Minnesota. Um, but Joe Cap was was not someone I'd, in my uh, memory, had the opportunity to meet. Of course, I'm sure he'd, he'd met me as a child. But things really sort of amped up in August of 2011 when I had the great fortune to attend uh, Bubba Smith's memorial service alongside my dad and many of his teammates. And at that moment, it was the first time I was able to really hear that it was bubba smith who recommended my dad for his opportunity at michigan state i'd sort of had this fantasy that these like magical white men just sort of randomly found my dad in texas and as someone who loves history um it never occurred to me to try to Piece out how that happened, why that happened, knowing that everything was completely segregated in Texas, that, that a university would find him <laughs> and bring him uh, to Michigan State and he'd have this great opportunity. And so learning about that at a time when it was too late to thank Bubba Smith, because unfortunately I'm hearing about this um, at the time of his passing, uh, really sort of um, stung in, in a very uh, personal way, <laughs> the realization that every door that opened for my dad could be tied back to the Smith family. And of yeah. course, every door that opened for me tied back to them. So that really put me on this um, passionate dive into history. Uh, my dad was uh, voted in uh, to the foot- College Football Hall of Fame, also in. 2011. And, um, he and Bubba Smith and George Webster at the time, uh, uh, two of the total four that were drafted in the first round in 67 were already members, um, of the hall of fame, uh, class at, um, as people who had gone to Michigan state, but at the national college football hall of fame. And later my dad's teammate, Clinton Jones uh, joined them. So, so. I just thought, you know, this is amazing. And I can't believe this important history with Duffy Doherty, their coach, um, what uh, sports journalists and historians call the underground railroad of college football. There was so much to uncover that I felt that film was the right avenue for that. Uh, to sort of dive into this history as a documentary from the perspective of me as as my dad's daughter. Uh, But it truly is more than anything, a love letter to Bubba Smith, and his father, coach Willie Ray Smith, who were really instrumental in my dad getting to Michigan State. And of course, all of the pioneers whose stories, um, people in your and my generation really don't know. (laughs) Um, Because it happened, you know, before we were Born and um, just really passionate about documenting that history and sort of offering a platform and a space for these um, very incredible men to tell their stories.
0: Right. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I mean, uh, with all of the you know you know segregation and you know racial issues that were, I mean, still are plaguing the country, but um, especially with uh, organized sports at that point, it's just crazy that we sort of have this ethos of American football being, you know, like the pride of the American South. And, you know, Texas is a big football state that, you know, everyone knows about that. All of these really talented black athletes had to leave the South and come to a school like Michigan state to really have an opportunity. Um, and, uh, I grew up, in Minneapolis to, I was a son of Packer fans, unfortunately, but I found my way to the Vikings on my own. And uh, my dad worked with someone who was uh, a personal friend of Justice Page. So I got to meet him at a really young age too. So I I had no idea that uh, he was playing on that Notre Dame team that uh, played against your dad in that uh, really historic game in the 66 season, I believe, uh, between Michigan State and Notre Dame. Um, I also love that you brought up uh, that your dad had a long, long career at 3M uh, leading up to his retirement party where this all sort of um, came about. Cause I loved one of my favorite stories your dad told in the documentary was how different pro football was and guys had to have another job. And (laughs) First thing Monday morning during the season, even after playing a game, he was in the office at, at 3M until having practice. So I was going to ask uh, how, how long he was at uh, at 3M after that. So I'm happy to hear that um he he made that his uh, his total career.
1: Yeah, he, you know, he he worked at a few other corporations, like in between all that. He worked at um, Michigan State, um, what used to be Dayton Hudson, you know, the 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 folks who started Target and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it later became Marshall Fields and Macy's, but um, he worked for Dayton Hudson. He worked for um, Toro company. Mm -hmm. He worked for an African-American hair care company called Lustra Silk at one point, um, and then (laughs) uh, eventually uh, returned uh, to 3M. So uh, it is pretty interesting because he, he, you know, when you get your, um, acknowledgement, you know, a lot of the corporations talk about how many years you've been at the company. Mm -hmm. And so it was really funny because whatever the number was, you know, in 2010, when he retired, he literally had more than, you know, more than that. But I think they only started counting on his, on his second stint.
0: Right. (laughs) Awesome. Um, well, I want to ask one more question just sort of about, you know, your childhood and like how, um, the, the football didn't really come into play. Um, you spent most of your childhood in the Minneapolis area, right? So yeah, I've just, I have friends, dads, whose you know, favorite player like was your dad. So I'm just wondering without having the knowledge of him being, you know, this football star as a kid, were there ever like, you know, interruptions when you're out in public of, you know, just strangers wanting to come up and talk to your dad or get pictures or get autographs or just sort of interact with him um, when you're just, you know, trying to have family time?
1: Yeah, I feel like my earliest memory of something like that happening, we were all out for a family dinner and um, I was really young. So it's like, I don't really remember the context but I remember someone coming up to the table and asking my dad for an autograph and really having no um, context for that. I think I was more excited about whatever restaurant we were at there was frog legs and somebody (laughs) ordered frog legs and let me taste them or try them. And I just thought that was the wildest thing ever that I was, (laughs) I mean, to this day, I don't think I've had frog legs ever again. Um, So I think it's funny that that memory coincides with that sort of experience with my dad. But um, yeah, it was kind of weird because by the time I was, you know, coming up, it would be more like people's parents, um, my siblings uh, were around, um, so their are um, kind of Gen X friends, right. <laughs> you know, had, <laughs> have those memories and, and um, just would notice that in some situations, people were very nice to us. I noticed that you know or people um were always saying hello and i just thought it was because my dad was a really friendly person mm-hmm. um not realizing it was probably because they recognized him or um you know <laughs> thought it thought thought it was pretty cool to to meet him um uh so it's it is really um interesting i guess it's an interesting and, and sort of weird um it's a weird experience, I guess.
0: <laughs> right. Do you remember what the restaurant was?
1: I don't. I feel like in those, like back in the day, um, the restaurant's now closed, but Rudolph's barbecue was like yes. the, the yeah. spot. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If you remember in those days when like Rudolph's was like. Yeah. That, <laughs> that,
0: <laughs> like, that not, is
1: fine dining, it, you know?
0: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't it, know if it was Rudolph's, but I feel like you know, in my memory, going out to eat, if we weren't going out for pizza, mm-hmm. um, that was probably the type of place we were, you know.
0: Right. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I love that. Um, so I mentioned at the beginning, you know, this um, uh, documentary is also going to be sort of released as, you know, your memoir um, this fall from uh, Little A Books. Um, and I think, you know, it, what's, about that, is you do often see you know books getting optioned for films and then being uh, adapted to films. Um, and uh, maybe it's more common than I think it is, but I feel like I never don't often see uh, a film it go the other route going from a film to a book unless it's you know a, a corny novelization of some Hollywood <laughs> movie for you know a cash grab. Um, did you always know you wanted to also? write this, like the the book version of this um, and sort of what has uh, that process of uh, bringing it to the world in like adult, in alternate form from its original form been like?
1: So for me, for whatever reason, um, when I started my filmmaking career, so I started as an actress and a dancer and started making films in 2011. And my first film uh, is a narrative short film called White Space. And it's about a deaf performance poet uh, who's performing for a hearing audience for the first time. And so of course my first film being about poetry made sense for there to be um, storytelling across different platforms. So that was always conceived of, okay, there's this short film. I can see the benefit, especially in the literary community of uh, making sure that um, hearing poets and writers are partnering with deaf poets and writers and introducing the idea of having ASL interpreters at readings, um, at performances so that we can be more inclusive in that way. And also had a third component in addition, well, kind of turned into like four components. So you have the short film, you have, ASL interpreters at readings and not sort of how we're uh, accustomed to seeing it maybe in the American theater where uh, a sign language interpreter sort of downstage right, sometimes off off the stage, um, away from uh, the action that's happening, just trying to kind of reinvent what that might be if we truly had more um, inclusive uh, live experiences. Uh, it was also visiting schools, sharing the film, doing um, residencies and educational workshops uh, with young students and um, not so young students, um, college students as well. And then the final component was uh, a poetry anthology that had the work of deaf and hearing poets and artists that I edited as, as well as um, uh, fine art. So uh, over the years, It's just sort of my MO as someone who dabbles in so many different art forms. And um, it's very surreal in 2020 seeing what's happened with COVID and uh, the extent to which everything has had to move to virtual spaces or the idea that we're telling stories in hybrid ways now. This was something I was sort of dabbling in like 10 years ago. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of cool to have a project of this scale Uh, be able to sort of er like rise to this moment. So with Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, even before the film finally came out, uh, I have been doing uh, artist residencies, educational touring, um, talking about these issues, talking about the desegregation of college football at colleges, high schools, Um, a group of elementary school students were able to come out and see the film. Uh, I also worked uh, in collaboration with a couple of um, photographers here in uh, the Twin Cities, Tom Baker and Hannah uh, Fosslin, on a huge project with um, Hennepin Theater Trust. So when the Super Bowl was here, I don't know if you remember, on Mayo Clinic Square, we had large portraits, like huge 40-foot portraits of um, my dad, Carl Eller, Mm -hmm. and um, Justice Page, along with quotes from the film. So that to me was sort of a big uh, opportunity to have this storytelling in a public arts uh, format or an urban um, art gallery, so to speak, to just cover the side of, you know, a giant building in the middle of downtown Minneapolis uh, with these ideas and with these Mm -hmm. topics. So by the time an opportunity to you know develop a literary component like maybe it was something that was on in the back of my mind but uh at the time was just really trying to to continue to get the feature film out the feature-length documentary and um interestingly enough the acquiring editor at little a uh, is a colleague and friend of mine a poet um, named Hafiza Jeter and um, in 2011, when my family attended my dad's um, induction into the College Football Hall of Fame at the Waldorf Astoria, Hafiza, who was my friend, kindly babysat my nieces um, in the hotel room above the, you know, the ballroom. We're all in the lower level, <laughs> you know, attending a banquet, yeah. and she was up there watching my nieces. So um, she had sort of been. Following me, following this story at a time when I wasn't even aware that, you know, 10 years later, I would, I would still be trying to tell this story. And so she approached me uh, maybe in the spring of t- 2018 and um, had been looking for manuscripts and sort of, you know, was um, reaching out to her network. And I was like, hey, remember this movie I've been making forever? You know, don't you think that would make a good book? And she was like, actually, I think it would. And um, we continued that conversation and um, the rest is sort of history. It led to a proposal that was accepted and, um, you know, uh, it's been sort of in the works for a couple of years now. And now we're sort of in that racing down the tracks, (laughs) um, which has been very fun and exciting to see the film sort of, uh, have its first broadcast run and, and do that in the world as I'm, you know, making choices about what images to use for the book and, and, and moving into what will hopefully be publication in the fall of 2021.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I think, um, one of the, uh, another alum of the program had gotten, uh, or had the film first got my radar by talking to you. Maybe it was Megan Maloney Vins or uh, uh, another person who attended Hamlin at the same time as y'all did. Um, so I was aware of this film you created for a long time before it, uh, you know, hit the airwaves on, you know, Big Ten Network and, you know, smartly on, I noticed, after a handful of key Michigan State games. Uh, so, you know, probably probably grabbed, you know, another audience members uh, through that. Um, what sort of is like the timeline and just sort of the process of you've like created this film and bringing it to the world. Because um, I don't think a lot of people know, you know, the sort of, you know, rights deals that happen or all of the moving parts that take place to get your film or this thing that you made, you know, on TV and uh, in front of viewers. So what was that like? And, you know, what are the things that go into it that make it, you know, sort of such a lengthy process?
1: Well, you know, it it was really hard. I'm not even going to lie. You know, in 2011, White Space, I I told you about that um, first film, just sort of exploded and did like, like, I was like, maybe someone will watch this film and, and be more thoughtful about including uh, (laughs) people who are deaf, you know, and and be more thoughtful in in that way. And and maybe one person or five will watch it and, and be changed as a result. But what I hadn't expected was it did like really well and like traveled all over the world and won awards and um, really sort of put me in a position to kind of have my first film experience out the gate be wildly successful in terms of, you know, checking a lot of indie boxes, especially for a first time uh, filmmaker and as a woman and as a woman of color at that time. Um, So naively, I thought, well, you know, like you said, you know, Justice Page, my dad, you know, all of these very significant figures in um, college and professional football are part of and tied to a very important uh, historical moment. Certainly, um, sports networks are just going to want to fund me, right? I have this idea. (laughs) I'm going to pitch it. um, And unfortunately that was just not my reality or the case so that may seem like hard to believe but um 2021 as challenging as things are for us was not how things were in 2011 so me i'm about five two and a half on a good day when i'm standing up nice and straight or you know have my hair in a ponytail. Um, and I'm a woman, and you know, ran into um, a lot of challenges where um, it just was profoundly challenging in so many ways. Navigating sort of the, the Boys Club of um, college athletics, um, navigating uh, rights usage with the NFL, um, just a lot of things that made, um, what should have been a slam dunk, right? And what, now that the film is out, people are like, this is amazing! Right. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, since it's been out since 2018, you know, this should be a 30 for 30! Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, audiences are going bananas, and I'm like, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but you... you... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, <laughs> clearly. If, if, if ESPN thought that or other networks thought that, well, then surely, um, you know, those conversations or those relationships would have been built, um, you know, seven plus, you know, years ago when, when that process started. So what I did, because uh, in uh, 2012 is like when I wrote my first grant, I got um, a grant from Jerome Foundation and a grant from... Um, Minnesota State Arts Board, and then later from Minnesota Film and Television, and so those were kind of the first big anchor um, foundation support, um, state support for the project. But I said, you know, in the it was like, I believe the fall of 2013 when um, Hank Bulla, my dad's um, former coach under Duffy Doherty, he he was a defensive um, line coach huge personality within uh, Michigan state sports uh, was being inducted to the college, or excuse me, to the Michigan state um, hall of fame, their athletics hall of fame. And I said, my goodness, you know, he's getting up there in age. Um, the catalyst for this was Bubba Smith who's, who's passed away. Um, George Webster, the other teammate who shares similar honors to my dad and Bubba he's passed away. I don't have time to wait for culture to catch up to me. I don't have time uh, to to just sort of wait and hope the um, sports networks or anybody is ready for a black woman filmmaker telling a story about football. Um, And so I just sort of jumped in whole hog, if that's an expression, um, put my own money, it is now, I put (laughs) my, my own money in, I started crowdfunding And um, truly, I got to the finish line and was able to finish this film and premiere at the Detroit Free Press Film Festival because of people who gave everything from $5 to $10 to $50 to $5,000 because they believed in the story before it was trending before all of these corporations went out and put out these, you know, black squares and these um, statements of diversity and these renewed commitments to paying attention um, to the to the challenges that marginalized people face. Um, and so it has been really um, quite a journey. I unfortunately wouldn't change it, you know, like, like as painful as it was. And so many friends and so many people who were there with me throughout that process who were just, you know, mouth agape at the ridiculous amount of obstacles that I faced. And filmmaking is hard for everyone, especially if you're an indie filmmaker, it's just hard. Um, but it's especially hard if you're not someone with just bags of money laying around um, <laughs> <Right. you know? laughs> and I'm not that. And, and um, like you mentioned, you know, football players didn't make in my dad's day what uh, what they do now. So um, this perception that myself or my family, you know, would would just be like, yeah, let's just, you know, fund this with that extra That of cash we have sitting in the kitchen um, was not realistic. And I have definitely extended myself to the highest (laughs) to the highest degree financially um, to make this happen. Uh, So what I think is actually the blessing out of that, out of all of the obstacles is um, the enormous, tremendous community we have, because this film wasn't just made by me. This film was made by hundreds of people all over the United States, some from like outside of the U.S. uh, who were that excited about this story, that passionate about sort of being on the right side of history as we uncovered history. And that's how the film got made. And so there are a lot of people who are just now uh, finding out about it because it was on the Big Ten Network and kudos to the Big Ten Network, um, because, of course, there are plenty of Sports networks, (laughs) you know, who could have um, taken this opportunity to share this film. And obviously, it makes a lot of sense uh, because of the Big Ten connection to Michigan State. Um, But those who are just now finding out about it, I think it's so important to note that it would not have been possible without, you know, um, strangers. Uh, from Flint, Michigan, or Detroit, or parts of Minneapolis and St. Paul, or Florida, or Puerto Rico, and other parts of the U.S., you know, just like sending in money because they heard about it or they saw, um, you know, saw us or joined our Facebook group or had been following the project. So I think if you know if I can offer insight, um, which was sort of the core of your question about like how do these things happen and. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a long, long journey, um, and I, and I wouldn't change any of it. Um, but trust, it was hard. It was hard. It was, um, painful. It was discouraging, um, to know that such an important chapter in history had never been documented and that, um, the obvious folks, right, who, who you'd think would have an interest in this story did not have an interest in this story. Um, And it took sort of uh, a lot of amazing people who supported the film. It took some very painful events in our history in 2020 uh, for folks to be more interested and um, more open to uh, supporting um, this story in particular. But I think that's the case for so many um, creators of color and people from other marginalized identities
0: Mm. yeah that's just so encouraging and like equally maddening just simultaneously to hear because like i was like kind of you know a football nerd growing up and how that happened was my grandma just got me you know piles and piles of nfl films tapes for christmas uh, you know, multiple years. So I was like watching all this like old film and stuff. So it's not like the NFL and, you know, these sort of, you know, gatekeepers in the filmmaking industry have been disinterested in, you know, the history of football, but telling the story of, you know, when, you know, maybe the decision makers didn't look so good, or, you know, they weren't treating players well. Um, and I had totally forgotten that it took people like, like your dad and Justice Page and uh, Clint Jones. And I'm blanking on who the fourth member of, of the Vikings was, but who didn't go to training camp that year. And then...
1: Charlie, Charlie West, I think Char- is Yes,
0: the- right. And then surprising, like the next day, oh, Gene, we've traded you to the Broncos, um, which, you know, it doesn't, you know, shine the best light on them, but that was, you know, how it happened. And, um, yeah, it's, so it's just, it's hard to, you know, hear that, you know... Mm that part of the game's ugly history has been you know just intentionally glossed over but definitely happy to hear that a lot of people went out of their way to make this happen and um, you know help you uh, tell this story so that's that's you know this silver lining even though I think we're trying to outlaw the term silver lining since the start of the pandemic but (laughs) (laughs) definitely encouraging um so with the the approach to the book then um Just something I think about, like comparing books to movies, uh, what makes me excited that this is going to be a book is there's a lot of, you know, sort of room to elaborate on things. Um, You sort of have, you have more space for content in a book than in an 80, 90 minute, you know, documentary. Um, I'm definitely someone who (laughs) is... More scared of editing than generating. Um, it's a lot easier to write 2,000 words than uh, 200 for me. So I, I love the idea of you know getting to you know just elaborate on like every piece of you know story that's here and like pull out a bunch of threads. Um, but I know that you know not every uh, writer is that way. So is was that an um, element of the book that you were excited for, or was that like a little you know terrifying?
1: well i think <laughs> i think before i dove in it was like so exciting cuz it, it was you know there's just so much uh, history um, john hanna for example he was the president of michigan state throughout the time my dad was was there and he for most of his tenure at michigan state university as the president he was the chairperson of the civil rights commission of the united states of america so he was um, instrumental in a number of major, you know, legislations like Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Acts of 64, 65, and uh, really had a very interesting uh, role sort of in how Duffy Doherty was able to create a pipeline to the South and recruit black players. Uh, he had that support all the way up to the top of the university from President Hannah. Uh, and to know that that was happening while my dad was just, you know, playing, you know, playing football and maybe occasionally the, the president of uh, the university would make an appearance and you know how they do, (laughs) They, they pop in and wave or shake, you know, shake their hands and stuff like that. And to know that they were in proximity to such major, uh, shifts and change and and sort of lasting impact is, is pretty remarkable. So going down that wormhole, I was like, yes, this is so great. I can talk about like John Hanna, I can, you know, I can delve into sort of who the pioneers were before my dad uh, in 1913, uh, Gideon Smith was the first uh, black player at Michigan State. Um, there were other black players throughout the big 10 conference, uh, which was formerly the big nine. And then there's this whole, you know, it kind of very quickly got overwhelming (laughs) and became like the hardest part because um, when you're writing in a historical narrative, um, there's things that I'm super excited about that um, visually you can kind of uh, I don't want to say cheat your way through but you can kind of cut to the chase in a way in film that in prose um wasn't necessarily the case like if you're gonna go there you really have to fully flesh out um that storyline or that sort of um thread that you're going down you can't just be like and you know i mean you could you know he was the chairperson of the civil rights commission but it's far more interesting um to kind of think more about uh not just uh that that fact exists, but the context around that fact, that fact and who John Hanna was as a human being um, and who the uh, big nine conference and the big 10 conference um, was. And even you know, here in Minnesota, University of Minnesota has kind of like a challenging history and relationship to, um, to race, right? Because they're sort of credited as uh, a pioneer, certainly. Um, uh, more math um, in uh, the number of Black players um, throughout time before my dad, but um, they're also uh, responsible for the death of Jack Trice, who was um, a Black player at Iowa State who was effectively trampled um, by the Minnesota Golden Gophers football team um, who uh, didn't survive those injuries and, and later died. So there's that kind of stuff um, that's in the book that I'm really honored and grateful to be able to kind of shed light on because um, these aren't uh, well known stories in uh, college football. And I think um, telling them from the perspective of a non, <laughs> a non, footballer you know what i mean like as someone who's really just since 2011 um followed football paid attention learned you know attempted to try to to become um a scholarly researcher in this in this world um hopefully you know gives an interesting perspective because of course i'm definitely more interested in uh the people, <laughs> you know, that these are players, their figures, their stats, but they're human beings, you know, who were going through different things in their lives, um, and were very brave and, and noble. So it it has been incredibly daunting. And um the editing process at this point, um, luckily, you know, they brought in a um a consulting editor named Mosi Secret who's really got a, a very uh Amazing uh, journalism background and um, is a scholarly researcher, and and that has just been really um, a blessing to sort of have that eye and that perspective in the process and in terms of what what stays and and what goes. Um, but I would definitely say the amount of history and the amount of connective um, threads—it's um, <laughs> been the hardest, the hardest the hardest part. And um, as a poet, truly, you know, um, a poet writing this much prose is, 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 is intense. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Right. <laughs> um, and luckily, I'm passionate about the subject matter and, you know, wrote the, um, you know, script for Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, the film, uh, but it's definitely, um, you know, a new, <laughs> new experience.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, writing poetry as a prose writer absolutely uh, terrifies me. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I can I can understand you know the the, the heebie jeebies that come with uh, with writing that. On that sort of that like, similar note, um, just because you work in pretty much every different kind of artistic form that uh, exists, and um, like it was kind of a natural sort of uh, reaction. It sounds like when you were at um, the uh, the retirement party for your dad and you're hearing these good stories that this would make a great film and then as like the film got closer you felt like oh well this would make a great book um do you have like is it always sort of just like in aha moment or do you sort of have a process for thinking like oh like this content would be a great poem or prose or you know um something for theater or filmmaking or dance or one of the other like many things you do. Um, I'm just curious to hear um, what sort of the process of identifying the appropriate form for each idea is.
1: Well, there's sort of like an initial, the initial aha. Um, Like white space was literally a dream. (laughs) Like in that sort of moment, just as you're awakening in the morning and maybe like hit the snooze button, um, but it was sort of like, a, I, I, saw it very clearly visually and it, um, it was literally poet on their way somewhere and culminates in a poetry performance. And that, that was it. Right. And so that sort of told me, oh, this is a short film. I, d- I can't explain it. I don't know why, but, but it was a short film. And I think as an indie filmmaker, uh, what seems to happen is the other components sort of reveal themselves as I I move towards the target of the initial um, project or container. So I have another um, narrative short film called Clear, and that is about a woman reconnecting with her family after a wrongful conviction. And so that idea came to me because um, my friend and colleague, uh, Tina Nagata Bar, Uh, was in her PhD um, dissertation uh, process at uh, University of Minnesota. And when she shared with me what she wanted to do her dissertation on, which was um, reentry benefits and resources for exonerated people, uh, she educated me on how challenging that is. That I assume when we see those um, news reports where it's like someone's been released from prison after 30 years for a crime they didn't commit, and you see their family crying, and you just imagine they go have you know a, a great big steak dinner, and you know <laughs> you know uh, get a big bag of money from the government, <laughs> you know, and move on with their life. But unfortunately, that is not the case. Um, many people fare worse than um, their counterparts who may um, have been guilty of the crime they were convicted of, or uh, who may have you know served a, a, a full sentence. But are eligible for certain reentry resources or have certain um, things to sort of help them uh, reenter, and so uh, that was really fascinating to me. And as her friend and as someone who you know lives in Minnesota, thank goodness we we are blessed to have great you know uh, public funding for the arts. Um, I said to her, I said, you know, I think this would really be a a, a great film, and so let me. Um, let me think about this. I would love to like, see if I could write something and work with you to see if we could use that film to uh, further uh, educate people about this issue or or, or build awareness. And so I was able to get a grant from Minnesota State Arts Board uh, to complete that project. And it came out uh, the same year that uh, Through the Banks of the Red Cedar came out. So like that idea was, okay, I'm gonna do this and I need a break because I'm exhausted because I've been making this feature documentary for, like, six years, I'm going to just do this other little thing, right. you know, called clear. Um, and so for me, there's like, the initial idea that comes in its own container, I knew through the banks, of the Red Cedar would be a feature, can't tell you how I knew that, but I knew it was going to be a documentary, and it was going to be a feature documentary, um, white space, I knew it was a short film, and it was a narrative. And I knew clear was a short film and a narrative. But oftentimes, Your road to getting that work funded, if you are not working for hire, if you're actually going the indie route. Um, The path to building community, building an audience. For me, everything that I do does have some kind of social impact or education component that, um, as an artist, uh, as much as I enjoy making art and being around artists, um, I don't just make art for myself. You know, like there are things I like to do you know, that artistic for myself, um, like, you know, cook or or draw or something, but it's so much more fun to cook and then have people over and share the food that I cook, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it just sort of has just happened very organically that there's always some kind of educational component and some opportunity for the community to engage in conversation about the issues that a film represents, that that it's true storytelling uh, with a purpose, um, that the work hopefully is inherently entertaining and interesting and compelling and of high um, artistic merit and, and those types of things. But that it's really meant to exist pretty much in any place or space where people are that could inspire conversation or dialogue or even action um with clear there are uh people in uh the legal field in um uh criminal justice who aren't even aware of that that particular issue you know you know about the innocence project and most of the Uh, content that we see about those issues is really focused on, you know, the exoneration Mm -hmm. and not sort of what happens once someone is exonerated, how their life has been uh, irrevocably changed um, because of their uh, conviction. Um, So, that's sort of um, a long-winded way of explaining how, right. <laughs> you know, how, how these things happen, but I just I just love um, I love art and I love the ways that you can tell a story through photography, um, through film, through poetry, through literature, through dance, through theater, through you know live um, performance, through. Um, Public conversation and discussion. And I think the arts are just a really great way that people who otherwise wouldn't maybe be in an artistic, in an artistic setting, or artists who might not be exposed to, um, you know, a social issue, um, are able to kind of have that experience through the work I try to, to create, I try to create an experiential um, witness to
0: story. Right. No, I, I love that answer. Um, and I, I love that um, you w- applied it to uh, the films that you have and um, particularly your dad's story, because um, like sort of you mentioned a little bit earlier that, uh, you know, these guys are, you know, players and figures and statistics and stuff, but are also, you know, human beings. And I've always felt that, you know, sport is just a great Container uh, for story beyond you know the the clickbait and hot takes that sort of rule like all the the dark corners of sports Twitter um, and things like that and that's sort of what has led us to having this journal and having this podcast. Um, whenever uh, a friend of mine was asking how he could help um, just pr- promote the journal, I think this was around when issue two came out. And he told me he like sent it to like all of his friends who like like sports and stuff like that. And I was like, do me a favor, send it to people you know who hate sports, because that's who I want reading this. And so then I want, you know, to hear why they still hate sports. Um, just to sort of challenge that like idea. I think this can happen on like sort of any, you know, category or anything, any like interest in like across culture, but just that there's so many great stories just beneath the surface and it's also it's awesome to talk with someone like you who tells those stories in just thousands of different ways um yeah keeps it keeps it a lot of fun um those are uh all of the questions I have actually no I did want to check uh just because this seems like something that we have to talk about with everything around writing in this well now it's a new year but with this past year I know you had the book to work on um but were you able to uh sort of do get out, get any exciting projects off the ground during pandemic um was the creative process just an absolute challenge or what what kind of uh things have you been working on uh for the like past few months or so that uh have you excited for the rest of this year
1: i think it's just yeah it's just survival to be to be quite honest and <laughs> to sort of um you know just to get the sort of the book to where it's at Um, and um, what's interesting with Martin Luther King Day coming up, um, that like, that was a revision day. I remember like, but I think um, the draft that um, Mosi Secret, uh, you know, worked on and gave notes on was like a draft I finished on Martin Luther King Day 2020, not realizing (laughs) <laughs> where, where we were headed you right. know, it was to go down, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. So pretty much like the book, um, getting through the banks of the red Cedar ready for broadcast and getting that out. Um, just trying to be of service to the, to the community. So there's been, you know, a few ways that I've just been quietly trying to support the community with my set. Um, whether that's uh, teaching, mentoring, um, coming on to some projects for other folks that that I've been able to to do um, has been really nice, you know, uh, to have sort of high profile things um, that like through the banks of the Red Cedar obviously has has been that, but to just sort of be in a quiet uh, space of service. And um, that's super important to me and uh, really, rewarding to, to just sort of try to be a resource, right? There's so many, there's so many stories that come out of 2020. Um, and it feels, uh, I just feel very humbled and grateful and a little bit, you know, misty eyed um, that I am just sort of, you know, humbled by um, any opportunity to help uh, cheer on root for um, and support in some small way, um, you know, all of these new storytellers who, who, um, may have been telling stories, but didn't have a platform or like me, no one was listening to in 2011 or 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, or okay, 20, you know? Um, so that's kind of, you know, what I've been doing, um, you know, quietly and in 2021, it's just uh, trying to really take a deep breath and um, not, not beyond that, that perpetual hustle, you know, right. um, and just sort of focus on the things that I have, um, I ha- you know, on my plate, which is the book, which is sort of identifying what the next broadcast um, home uh, is for Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, as well as um, people who email me and call me uh, pretty much weekly asking for a DVD <laughs> and asking me where they can see the film. Right. Um, so that's sort of, um, you know, where my heart and focus are for 2021. And just trying to, you know, be there for my family mm-hmm. and my friends. Um, there's There's been a lot of loss. A lot of people have um, lost parents, loved ones, um, siblings, um, you name it. Um, it's, it's just been a hard year for a lot of people. So I'm just, you know, humble, that I'm still here
0: right.
1: and just trying to support others, which is, um, about all I can do right. <laughs> all, I, all I really want to do right. to be quite honest is just, you know, make sure that other people and other voices, um, are reminded how important their voices are and their stories are and and just try to be a champion for, for others.
0: Right. I love that. And best of luck with finding the next broadcast uh, home for, through the banks of the red Cedar Um, just with (laughs) all of, all of the horror stories you just told me of (laughs) getting that thing to screen um, despite how, uh, how incredible it is. Um, I I really hope it can, you know, find, find more uh, audiences uh, somewhere and, you know, the people who are in power in, in the film industry uh, wise up and get it on uh, in front of as many people as possible. Um, well, thank you again, Maya, for uh, taking the time for this. Um, we sincerely appreciate it. Um, love uh, getting the chance to talk with you. Love having your work in our journal. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to, again to the great Maya Washington for joining me on this episode of The Under Review Presents, Terry Horseman, With the Call. Make sure you follow Maya on Twitter at IMayaWashington and check out everything else she's got going on at TheMayaWashington.com. And much thanks to you, dear listener. So grateful for you spending this time with us for tuning in to this episode of With the Call. Please visit the site. Please submit your work to to the magazine. And please tune in again next time for another episode of The Under Review Presents. Terry Horseman with the call. Thank you.